0: that uh, we started a series a few weeks ago called echoes um, and we we spent a first week talking about the reformation and uh, pastor bill and dan haney team taught that um, and talked about kind of the history of catholicism and protestantism and then introduced these five solas uh, that we're spending five weeks talking about last week we talked about um, scripture alone and I, I taught on that one and so if you were here uh, hopefully that inspired you to be in the Word more. If you weren't here, be sure to go back and listen to the podcast and to take a listen to that. Today we're talking about grace alone. Um, and so next week, uh, Pastor Dan, our children's pastor, is going to talk about faith alone. And then Pastor Bill will, I, I think that's the order, Pastor Bill will be back for four and five. Glory to God alone and, and uh, Christ alone. So um, this morning, though... I thought we'd start maybe a little bit differently than normal. Being a youth pastor, um, we do some things in youth ministry that you don't want to do on, on Sunday mornings. And I thought, you know, let's introduce some of these things to you guys. If your students were here Wednesday night, they know we played a game called um, Gears and Exploding Kittens. We're not doing that this morning, okay? Uh, we're not doing that. And you're all like, you did what? I was don't worry, no animals were harmed in the making of this vi- this game. Um, but we all know and love minute to win at games, right? So I've already got my one volunteer. Maybe it was forced. I'm not sure. But Bill, you're going to come on up. You're going to be one of our contestants. Um, I need three other people. Now, you have to be an adult. Um, you can't be one of my students because you get to do this. Come on up. Don't be shy. Come on up. Um, you, you, get, you guys get students. You guys get to do this on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. Uh, so I need three other adults. Can be guy. Can be girl. I just heard over here, Dad, raise your hand. Hey, we're not going home until I get three more volunteers. There's one. All right. Two more. Two more. I don't know how to operate this thing, evidently, Toby. There we go. All right. And we got four. Oh, Nate Lee grew up in our youth ministry. All right. All right. So let's do a little introductions real quick. Just uh, give me name and uh, maybe your, you know, f- most embarrassing story in front of your f- No, I'm just kidding. Um, just name real quick. Bill McClure. Bill McClure. Nate Lee. Is this on? Check 2 you. Well, I'm talking into this and this. Of course it's going to work. Austin Lewandowski. Donette Mason. All right. Have you guys ever played minutes winning games? Okay. All right. Who's the, who thinks they're most most athletic? <laughs> All right. Just hold these for a second. Hold these for a second. Uh, Bill, let's see. Cookie. Do you like cookies? Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Here you go. Grab a cookie. Just one. The rest are for me later. Okay. All right. What have I got? Let's see. Pennies? We'll we'll let, we'll let, uh, you want pennies or cups? I'll do pennies. Pennies, okay, there you go. You're gonna need the table, so go ahead and move over to the table. Bill, you've got the cups. Now, we're gonna run all four of these games simultaneously, okay, just so you're aware. But I'm gonna explain, do you see that? Quick reflexes. I I gotta explain what you gotta do, all right? So just bear with us for a second. And then we're actually gonna do the countdown, and you guys will feel the pressure. Of the 60-second countdown. And by the way, I have prizes. For if you accomplish, I have prizes for you. All right? $10 blend gift cards. So, Donette, what you need to do is you need to stack these pennies. There's 25 pennies. You need to stack them in under 60 seconds. But there's a catch. You can only use one hand. All right? So your other hand's got to be behind your back. All right, you've got 24 red cups and one blue cup. Okay? What you have to do in 60 seconds is move all the cups from the bottom to the top. Actually, we're going to start this way. So you get from the top to the bottom until the blue cup gets to the top. So you're just moving it like this, okay? okay? You know what you're doing? Mm-hmm. All right. You, you've got two balloons, right? Yes. What you have to do is keep the two balloons up in the air for 60 seconds. Easy enough. <laughs> okay. One-handed. That's what there you go. All right, you like cookies, Austin, I right? I do. All right, you've got a good forehead. There's no hair here to, to mess this up, All okay? Right. So you might want to put this... I got it too, man, it's all good, it's all good. You're not as bad as I am, that's for sure. You might want to put your sunglasses back here, because you might have, kind of the most embarrassing, you actually have to balance this on your forehead, and without using your hands, you have to move it to your mouth and eat it, okay? And if you drop it, you can pick it back up, it's... It's a, it's, yeah, five second, 10 second, 30 second rule. I found one of those in my truck the other day. It's been in there for a few days. It's all good. So So you can balance it. Yep. And then you got to like move your face all weird to get it down. You might put the chocolate side down and maybe have a little better grip. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But are you guys ready? Do you know what you're doing? All right. Feel free to get your cameras out and videotape this if you'd like to. (laughs) It happens all the time in student ministry. Um, All right. Are you guys ready on the countdown? All right. So you're going to get a three, two, one, and then... 60 seconds on the screen. Good? Yeah, you, in fact, you might want to just go ahead and go over there. Just so you don't roll an ankle. Like falling off of the stage. All right. Are we ready? Get set. Here comes the countdown when it starts. Go ahead, Jim. All right, not yet. Not yet, not yet. It's going to give you a three, two, one. 1. The game begins in 3, 2, one. All right, Come help me keep... Help me keep him honest. Help keep him honest. Get that hand behind your back. Uh-oh. Oh, there's a cookie down. Nate, are you already done? You're done. All right. All right, 47, 46, 45. Donette, how are you doing? We good? Cuffs, are you... Have you gotten it yet? Okay, you're still going? Still going? All right, let's... Harder than it looks, you can just put this in there. All right. Bill's just like slow, he's got this. Methodical, easy. Cookie's still going. We're getting down 24 seconds. No pressure, 24 seconds. 24 seconds. 20, 19. All right, good job, good job. We got that. All right, now I forgot a rule evidently, so I'm going to have to correct this for next service, but you win a prize. I'll explain the rule. All right, eight seconds, Austin. Seven, six. Five, four, three, two, one. (laughs) He was lunging at me. You can keep the cookie. It's all yours. That's your prize. Congratulations. Congratulations. Nate, I'm sorry you lost. All right, go ahead and have a seat. You lost. Uh, Bill, man, like methodical, just simple, easy to go. Cardinal Red. (laughs) 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 I'm just going to leave this here for the rest of the service. No, I'm just kidding. I'll pick those up later. All right, there's your there's your $10 blend card. You're welcome. Donette, a rule that I forgot, and you you you, you win. You win the prize. Don't I'm worry. Not supposed to do that. You were. You were supposed to like hold them up. You couldn't use the table, I forgot. You had to like hold them up hold like them this. Up. Yeah, all 25. Like picking up. So but I didn't explain that, so okay. you win a the prize. There you go. You're welcome. A round of applause for everybody. <laughs> Now, some of you are like, what is happening? Like, when we do games in youth ministry, there's always a reason for those games. This morning is no different, okay? So, oftentimes, what we do in life is what we just experienced. We recognize that if we want to earn something, in this case, $10 blend gift card, right? We have to do something to earn that gift, that prize. And so, this morning, we had two people that earned their prize and two people who did not. And in reality, life is like that oftentimes, with very few exceptions. You want good grades? You better work hard to earn them, right? If you want to make the team, you better better hustle in tryouts. If you want to make the game after you make the team, you better hustle and practice. If you want to get paid on Friday, you better clock the hours during the week. If you want the house, the car, the vacation, save money, uh, set it aside, work the job, earn the money, and then get your reward for that. Unfortunately, this, this mentality can oftentimes carry over into our understanding of God as well. You want to be loved by God? Many of us think then you'd better work to earn that love. Did you go to church? Okay, God loves you. Did you read your Bible? Oh, God must love me. It's a check mark. Did you give your tithe? Did you attend small group this week? Did you, did you go on a mission trip to Peru? Did you volunteer in student ministry? I'll say that again. Did you volunteer in student (laughs) ministry? God loves you more if you volunteer with students. Just saying. It's not biblical. That's heresy. That's straight heresy. But the reality is, is so many of us, so many of us, we make a checklist of things that we we do thinking that we earn God's love as a result, just like these minute to win it games. And if we don't do those things, then God must not love us. We'll never admit that out loud, but at a functional level, this is how we operate. In fact, we, we treat God oftentimes like we treat other human beings. Uh, many of you have probably heard of, of what's called a relational bank account. Anybody heard of that? You familiar with that terminology? <clears throat> we, we see this sometimes in, in marriage conferences and things like that. But it's this idea that, that we have this bank account. I've got some change here. Props. You always got to have props, right? We, we, we have this relational bank account, and this may be uh, with your spouse it may be with your children, maybe with a, a coworker or a friend, or something like that, right? But, but this idea of a relational bank account, which is actually really powerful illustration, this idea of the relational bank account is for every positive interaction you have with your spouse, your kids, your coworker, your neighbor, your friend, whatever, it's a deposit. that's a big one. What is that? It's from Guatemala., hey, there you go. Um, one of our mission strips. Um, for every positive encounter you have, uh, you make a deposit into the bank account, right? You wake up and and you you say good morning uh, to your kids in a lovey-dovey voice instead of, get out of bed and go to school, right? Um, If if you're encouraging in the morning, you just made a deposit with your kids. If your wife comes home and you've done the dishes and scooped the cat litter, it's a deposit for your kid with your wife, right? Just saying, that's my wife's love language, right? Like I buy her gifts, she goes, why? In fact, if I buy a gift, I take a withdrawal from that. She's like, what are you doing? Like that is not my love language, right? Right? But you're at work and, and you, you help out a team, team member, right, to deposit into there. If you're in your neighborhood and you decide to go over and, and help mow your, your neighbor's lawn, it's a deposit in there, right? All these positive interactions we have builds up into our relational bank account. And conversely, when we have a negative interaction, it's a withdrawal, right? You, you tell your wife that the pants look a little too big on her butt. That's that giant coin that just came out. <laughs> it's a big withdrawal, Right? All of a sudden, your bank account's getting a little less. You, you yell at your kids and you've withdrawn some from that. you know you, you decide not to help your neighbor. It's a withdrawal from your bank account. Do You get what we're saying here? And, and ideally, as we have these interactions with, with uh, our fellow human beings, whether it be our spouses, our kids or whatever. the goal of, in life, hopefully, unless you know you're a jerk, the goal in life is to have more deposits than withdrawals and, and you can know if you have a good relationship with somebody if you seem to have more positive, more deposits than withdrawals. Unfortunately, we do the same thing with God. We say, this must be how God interacts with us. So if we go to church, we just made a deposit. If we read our Bible, we made a deposit. If we volunteer in student ministry, we just made a big deposit, especially middle school, right? But then conversely, sometimes we think, well, gosh, if I, if I miss church, that's a withdrawal from that relationship with God. If, if, I, if I'm stingy with my, my offering, that's a withdrawal from that relationship. If I don't volunteer, then, gosh, you know, it's a withdrawal. And then we do these things over and over and over. If we sin, you know, it's a withdrawal from this relational bank account. And we, we carry over to God what is reserved for our relationships with humans because we completely misunderstand God's love for us. We, we make it conditional on us doing something to earn God's love. And again, God says, that is completely not how I operate. In fact, that is the opposite of how I operate, God says. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, kind of a core verse for today and next week with Pastor Dan, uh, says this. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you know this this word grace? I mean, we sing it, right? Amazing grace. But do you really understand what that word means? It it means the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God. Meaning, you can do nothing to earn the favor of God. God loves you regardless. One author I read this week uh, put it this way. I really liked it. Taking the unforgivable and making it forgivable. I love that in the purest sense grace is god giving us what we could never earn on our own and from the beginning god knew that we were going to need grace god knew that that we couldn't hold up our part of this relationship with him our our side of the, the deal here in fact when we read in, in genesis of adam and eve in the garden uh, you know we know the story we know that they ate of the tree and 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 we think they broke a rule right the problem is we immediately think it's a rule it was never a rule it was a relationship God took the form of something, we don't know exactly what, right, this is part of the mystery of the garden, but God took on a physical form, walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, spent time with them, gave them everything they could ever need, and all he said is, make sure that you understand that I am enough for you. And, and then they, they get deceived, they see the tree, and they listen to, to the words of Satan, and they eat, they eat. And basically what they're saying is, God, you are not enough. You were holding out on us. There was something here that, that you didn't give us, something, something that, that you weren't enough for us. It wasn't about rules. It was about relationship. It was very intimate what they did. God was saying, I'm giving you everything, everything that I am, all that I am, all that I possess. And we look at him. Picture a spouse saying this to, to their spouse. A loved one, and just smacking him in the face and saying, you're not enough. Like, that's not breaking a rule. That's breaking a relationship. It's very personal. And as a result, God knew that steps had to be taken to restore that relationship, not to institute a new set of rules, but to restore a relationship. And there's this story in, in Genesis chapter 15. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's kind of a weird story if you don't understand um, ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, but God is, is making a covenant relationship with Abraham, uh, and he, he says, here's what we're going to do. Abraham, I want you to get a heifer, a ram, oh, let me make sure I get this right, a heifer, a ram, a goat, a dove, and a pigeon, and we're gonna make a, I'm going to make a promise to you, God says. I'm going to give you heirs, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you blessings. So we're going to enter into this covenant relationship. Here's what I want you to do, Abraham. Uh, Cut the heifer, the ram, and the goat in half. Kind of gets bloody here. Forgive me if you have a queasy stomach. But he says, cut these animals in half and make a path to walk between, right? And this was actually uh, common in ancient Near Eastern culture. When you would enter into a a covenant agreement with another human being, Uh, you would have this this experience where you you would walk down this path. And by doing it, what you were saying was, we are both agreeing, as we walk down this path between these two, these dead animals, we are both agreeing to the terms of this covenant relationship. And if I break, either one is saying this, if I break this covenant relationship, may it be done to me what's been done to these animals. May I be killed because I broke this relationship. And it's kind of a a weird picture, weird practice, like it, it doesn't equate with us today. But God says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work with the culture, and so I want you to create this path of bloody animals, and we're going to walk down this thing together. But then something interesting happens. Scripture tells us that Abraham falls into a deep and troubling sleep. And in this sleep, God now appears as both a flaming torch and a fire pot. And we're like, what does that mean? We're not really sure, but we know that God throughout the Old Testament shows up as fire, right? Think of Moses in the burning bush. Think of Israel, the nation of, the nation of Israel as they wander the wilderness, the pillar of, of cloud and fire, right? So God shows up in physical form as a, a flaming torch and a fire pot. Two entities. Two, right? Two entities, right? You need two entities to enter into a covenant relationship. And what God does is while Abraham is asleep, God himself, as two entities, walks down this path and says to Abraham, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you, but I am going to bear all of the weight and all of the burden if you break this covenant relationship. He didn't ask Abraham to walk down that path because he knew that Abraham couldn't carry the burden and the weight of that agreement. And so God says, I love you so much, Abraham. I'm making a promise to you. I'm also going to carry the consequences if you break that covenant relationship. Who does that? Nobody in their right mind does that. Unless you have an intense love for the person you're entering that covenant relationship with. You see, God doesn't just pretend that our sin doesn't exist. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to it. God is both loving and just. And we cannot separate those two attributes of God. There are consequences for our sin. Uh, There's consequences that that have to be met. And and, and the reality is, is we are not saved by the setting aside of justice. Write this down. We are not saved by the setting aside of justice, but by the fulfillment of justice. Does that make sense? It's not like God just looks and says, hey, I love you, I forgive you, your wipe's clean. God's like, hey, you messed up. There's consequences for sin. Somebody has to bear those consequences. But as he said to Abraham, I'm not going to put that on you, I'm going to bear that consequence myself. Are you beginning to get a picture of Jesus here? This Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 is a signpost that, that points us forward to Jesus on the cross. You see all through the Old Testament we see that God has instituted this idea of of animal sacrifices to make the nation of Israel right with God, to forgive us, to forgive them of their sin, to cleanse them from their sin. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, it was a bloody place. Like the tabernacle as you're reading through all the animal sacrifices, I mean, chop the head off this, cut this, take this organ over here, this organ over here, burn this over here, sprinkle blood over here, over here, over here. Like it was just gory. And, and we sit back, and we, as, as modern-day Christians, we're like, what in the world is going on? And, and yet we read, and I didn't have this on the screen for you, but we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, God is both loving and just. And he demands from mankind absolute righteousness. We get a glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word there is teleos, which, by the way, when you type that into your computer, um, it auto-corrects to tolis. I have no idea. It changes the whole message right there, right? Uh, Be tolis. That's not what God is saying. He's saying be perfect. But that Greek word teleos has, has deeper meaning as well. It means complete in all of its parts, be full-grown of full age, mature, complete in Christian character. Jesus says, "Be this way, be perfect, be complete, be completely mature." And, and, and at the same time that God demands that righteousness of us, He knows that we can't achieve that on our own. We read Romans chapter three, verse 23. "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, we read again in chapter 3, uh, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've be- together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And yet God demands absolute righteousness of us. Simultaneously saying, you can't do it. This is where the cross comes into play. This is, this is where Jesus' death his sacrifice, his burial, his resurrection comes into play. Jesus, knowing that penalty had to be paid, knowing that somebody had to bear the burden of mankind's sin, knowing that man was incapable of carrying that burden, takes us back to that Abrahamic covenant as a signpost and says, I'm going to walk down this path because mankind has broken this relationship. I'm going to bear that burden myself. He goes to the cross to carry our sins. Hebrews chapter nine tells us that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Again, taking us back to the Old Testament practice of sacrifices. This isn't in my notes. We're too familiar with this. <clears throat> yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Right? We sing it in Sunday school, we've been singing it since we were kids. I, I want you to see, this is, this is maybe where, I'm, I'm totally ad-libbing here, so forgive me for all this. Maybe this is where the fact I didn't grow up in the church is a benefit to me, because I didn't grow up understanding that Jesus loved me. I didn't discover that until I was, was mired deep in my sin, and I, and I saw how sinful I was, and I saw how um, incapable I was of saving myself. And then I learned this story of Jesus who said, Chris, I love you. So much that I'm going to bear the burden, the consequences of your sin on the cross. See, I think we're too familiar with them. we become too familiar, we become complacent. I I think we need to take time and and let the reality of what Jesus has done for us hit us again. As if it's the, the first time that we've ever heard it. The first time we've ever experienced a love that deep. The first time we ever understood how much God cares about us and looks down on us and is willing to take that first step to restore that relationship back with him. and Unfortunately, that doesn't stop us from creating this checklist. It doesn't stop us from trying to earn our salvation. Go to church, read the Bible, go on a missions trip. Give, serve, all of these things. This, this is one of the things that Martin Luther, we talked about the Reformation. This is one of the things that, that really frustrated him as he began to, to dig into Scripture and to look at how the church was operating. Because the church was, was saying to uh, the people in the pew, you can do things to earn your salvation. You, you can be good enough. You can do uh, right things, and you can earn your salvation. In fact, maybe you're not even that good that you can't do those things, but you can buy those things called indulgences, right? So if you pay us enough money, you'll be forgiven of your sins. Uh, the, the, the idea of purgatory, that, that post-death you can work out your sins, was a, another way that the church was saying, listen, you can pay off your sins. You can earn your salvation. And Martin Luther looked at all that, and he looked at himself, I mean, Martin Luther was, was uh, what I call hyper-aware of his own sinfulness and his own inability uh, to meet the demands that God requires. In fact, in the book Echoes of Reformation, um, I love this on page 58, uh, this quote from Luther. He says, It's true, I was a, a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this for it had gone on much long, for if it had gone on much longer i would have been martyred myself to death what with vigils prayers readings and other works and yet my conscience would not give me certainty but i always doubted and always said you didn't do that right you weren't contrite enough you you left that out of your confession the more i tried to remedy an uncertain weak and troubled conscience with human traditions the more daily i found it uh, the more daily i found it more uncertain weaker and more troubled Luther understood what we need to understand today, that God sees us through the lens of Jesus. When God looks at us, he doesn't see the sinful, wretched souls that we are. He sees Jesus' righteousness given to us. It's as if we're clothed with Jesus, and God, again, doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. But knows that Jesus has carried the burden and the consequences of our sin. But let's be honest; we have a hard time with this because we we don't understand this type of love. We don't want to see it demonstrated in our human relationships. We know that that our wives will sometimes not love us, that our husbands will sometimes not love us. We know that that parents divorce, that friends betray. We. As a result, we carry this mentality into our relationship with God and begin to doubt the goodness and the depth of God's love. How could God truly love us? Last week, I referenced this book, Awe, by Paul David Tripp. And in a, in a chapter I just read recently, he talks about uh, street-level theology. Let, let me explain what I mean by that. It's the core beliefs about God that shape your daily life. It's not, not the heady theology of who is God and what's the nature of sin and eternal salvation and all that kind of stuff. These are, these are the questions that maybe you don't even know you ask yourself. But they shape your daily life and they shape your understanding of God and how he, he views you. And so Paul David Tripp identifies five questions. Um, this is in chapter 7 of Awe. He says five questions that we all wrestle with, whether we know it or not. Is God good? Will God do what he promised? Is God in control? Does God have the needed power? Does God care about me? Friends, the cross of Jesus answers every one of these questions with a resounding answer. Is God good? Yeah. God says, you can't bear that sin yourself, so I'm going I'm to carry it for you. It, will God do what he promised? He sent Jesus to the cross. He, he fulfilled that covenant relationship with mankind. Is God in control? God conquered death. It's pretty much in control. Does God have the needed power? He rose Jesus from the dead. I'm pretty sure that's the needed power. Does God care about me? I don't know how anybody looks at the cross of Jesus and answers that question in the negative. Does God care about you? Seriously? God cares more about you than you will ever understand. God loves you more than you will ever imagine. Romans 3, again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We read that part. Read the next part. And we are justified. We're made right with God by his grace as a gift. Nothing that we've done to earn it. Nothing that we can be good enough, smart enough, give enough money, serve enough. It's only through the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's Jesus plus nothing. If we think that there's anything that we do that earns our salvation... We cheapen the grace of God. Now, there's things that we do as a result of God's love. Dan's going to hit on that next week. There's things that, that, that we do that we, we live differently, we act differently, we, we do all of these things. We go to church, we read the Bible, we, we serve, we give, all of these things because of what God has done for us, not to earn God's love. Does that make a difference? Do you understand the difference? Dan's going to unpack that a little bit more next week. Earlier, we sang the song Amazing Grace. I don't know if you know the backstory um, on that song, on the author of the song, John Newton. Uh, John Newton was a a young man, grew up in in England. Um, He was uh, conscripted, his mother died when he was young. Um, He was conscripted, I can't even speak this morning, conscripted into the Royal Navy, uh, meaning he didn't want to go, right? He was forced to go into the military. And, And so he joined the Navy. Um, he, he spent time on, on ships, and uh, what was interesting was John Newton, um, the author of Amazing Grace, was actually one of the most vulgar and profane sailors that these captains had ever had. I mean, he was, he was a guy that invented new cuss words, right? I mean, he was that creative. He was imprisoned multiple times on ships where he was, was both a sailor in, in the Navy, and then uh, later on just as a sailor working on, on boats, Um, He he was imprisoned below. Um, Oftentimes, he was on slave ships, and he was imprisoned with those slaves for how vulgar and how disrespectful and how much he he fought against the ship's captain. In fact, at one point, um, he was set ashore in Sierra Leone as a slave for six months because they couldn't stand to have him on the ship anymore. His dad went and and found him and rescued him, brought him back, put him on another ship that was still trafficking in slaves. Uh, They had a storm that hit one night, and, and, and John Newton, his first thought was not God. Like he's trying to every other avenue, right? Every, everything they could do humanly to save this ship, to not die in this, in this ship, in this storm. And yet he cried out, God have mercy on us. Kind of a last resort. And we know that, that, that the ship survived. They, they went on. And a couple weeks later, they pulled into port. I had always thought that the conversion happened there. Like I thought that was the moment, Right? I learned this week that's not when the conversion actually happened. He went on for another three or four years as a slave captain of his own ship, uh, trafficking in slaves from Africa and sending them around the world. And, and it wasn't until at the age of 30, the ripe old age of 30, when all of a sudden he, he fell from exhaustion and he couldn't sail anymore. And he became a, a, um, a customs agent in Liverpool. And it was at this time that he met a woman. It's always a girl, right? There's always a girl in these stories. He met a girl, and actually the girl's parents didn't, they knew who he was. They knew how vulgar and profane he was. In fact, after this storm, the only thing that changed was his language. He still trafficked in slaves, still did everything wrong. He just wasn't cussing as much, right? So her parents hesitantly said, you may court our daughter. And so they began writing eventually fell in love, got married with the blessing of the parents. Well, they they were in uh, Liverpool, as I said. And began to he began to teach himself Latin and Greek and theology. They began to get involved in a, a local church community. And there is where he, he kept going back to that storm. When he said, God, show mercy on me. And as he studied scriptures and he, he went back to that moment, he understood the depth of God's love for him. He went on to become a parish priest in Alney, um, in Birkamsh Can't even say Buckinghamshire uh, in 1764. And it was there that he, he penned the words that eventually became the song Amazing Grace. I, I read this as one biographer said about John Newton. The memory of his own, Lord have mercy on us, uttered during a moment of desperation in the storm did not leave him. He began to ask if he was worthy of God's mercy or in any way redeemable as he had not only neglected his faith but directly opposed it, mocking others who showed faith, deriding and denouncing God as a myth. He came to believe that God had sent him a profound message and had begun to work through him. Newton saw himself a sinner like David who had been chosen, perhaps undeservedly, and was humbled by it. According to Newton, unconverted sinners were blinded by the God of this world. He went on to say that our hearts endeavor to shut God out, but he overcomes us by the power of his grace. See, Newton understood something that we sometimes don't understand today we have this relational bank account where we're making deposits we're making withdrawals and then God comes along in his amazing grace and he said I'm enough you don't have to do anything it's not about whether you're good, not about what you withdrew. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. I find it interesting that the last words in the Bible, Revelation twenty-two, twenty-one, 21, says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Do you know what John is saying in this verse? He says, may the overflowing, overwhelming, abundant love of God, the undeniably life-changing and transformative love of God, the the deeply personal, uh, you have done nothing to earn it, unmerited favor of God, be lavished upon you through my son Jesus Christ. Amen. May we learn to live daily in the amazing grace. Of Jesus Christ. We all stand with us.